This program and its online content contains audio and information about traumatic events that may be triggering to those who have experienced something similar. It may also be unsuitable for younger listeners. It's just it's a risk, but life is all about risk. It's better you die on the sea than to, to die in the land of Libya. So you take the risk. Welcome to the final episode of Migration Trail, the project that uses maps, data and audio to join the dots of a story spread across Europe and beyond. Throughout this series, we've heard from a lot of people about the risks they're willing to take in search of a better life. The journeys to the EU that irregular migrants make are incredibly risky, but filled with hope. They're traumatic, sometimes fatal, but never without purpose, and often filled with unexpected moments. We arrived in Sweden, in Babel, and uh, I went to this uh, security person in the train station, and I told her, what should we do? And she said, just go out, find the cab, and tell her that you are a refugee. Abdul Rahman, a student who fled Syria with his family in 2015 and whose story we've been following in this series, had originally intended to go to Germany. But when they arrived there and saw how many people were there waiting for help, they decided to take another chance. They got on a train for Sweden instead. We went to the cabs and we told them that we need to go to a reception centre or a hotel. And they took us. Like it took about uh, 20 minutes in Malmö, yeah. And as soon as we arrived at the hotel, they gave us rooms, uh, new sheets and pillows. It was such a relief. Uh, I hadn't seen a pillow in 16 days. That's how long their entire trip took, from Syria to Sweden. They were lucky, and for them, the procedure of applying for asylum was also relatively straightforward. It starts uh, the moment you get to Sweden, like uh, they take your name and afterwards they're really organised actually. They send you an appointment to fingerprint and give your papers and to have an interview with you and welcome you to Sweden. They're really nice. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't feel like a migration office. Like. Abdurrahman and his family were given an apartment and waited around a year for their residence permits. In the meantime, he decided to teach himself Swedish because without a social security number, he wasn't able to work or go to school yet. And afterwards, I started uh, learning Swedish uh, through YouTube. It was really helpful. Like, former uh, refugees have uh, made a lot of videos to teach other Syrians. It's not that uh, fun to start learning a language. Like for my dad, he's 55, and he's getting to a new society alone. I mean, with his, with his family, but no friends, no contacts. And he has to learn a new language to get into the job market and start, find a job. Yeah, so it's a bit difficult for him. My mom is doing well. Like, she's super glad that we're fine and 
Once they got their residence permits, Abdurrahman and his family were able to attend government-sponsored Swedish classes. And Abdurrahman finished earlier than expected. Life in Sweden is good for him and his family, and they have no regrets about making the trip. He's still in touch with friends back in Aleppo, and the situation is not good. It's really a shitty situation because uh, Russians are, are everywhere and uh, regime mercenaries are everywhere. And you can't be comfortable in your own country. It's really, really hard to find a job. And it's really hard to be able to buy anything. Like The water is very expensive and the electricity is very expensive because they now have generators in place and you have to pay a lot of money to get electricity, limited electricity. The currency value is much l less than it used to be. And uh, yeah, it's hard to buy food, it's hard to cook. His friends are in an impossible situation. Not only is it dangerous in their home country, even if they left, it will be difficult to make the same trip to Greece that Abdurrahman and his family did in 2015. And if they did, it would certainly not take just 16 days. Even getting as far as Turkey would be tough. Syrians now need visas to go there by air or sea. And crossing overland is also more difficult and more dangerous than before. A recently constructed wall runs along the length of the border there now. And if, even if you manage to reach Greece, then all the other European countries have closed their borders. Like, you could be stuck there, like a lot of refugees right now. And this is where a lot of people find themselves now. But staying in a camp is not usually what someone envisions when they head to Europe. They don't want to be in a camp. That's why they're coming to Europe in the first place. Because you know, they don't want to be in a camp in Jordan. Because a refugee camp is no, it's no way to provide a, any kind of a, a secure future for yourself or for your family. For them, movement means life. And stopping in any way, shape or form risks the possibility that they are going to be able to seek life where they, where they want to. At least that's the situation for some, especially those coming from countries where a civil war is taking place. Even if peace were to be restored across the country tomorrow, it will take a long time before people would be able to return. So many people who've arrived in Europe have claimed asylum. And if, like Abdurrahman and his family, they've had their claim accepted, they've started to settle and move on with their lives. Not everyone who's arrived in Europe after making one of these risky journeys has been so lucky, though. Austerity measures, often coupled with a lack of coordination and political will to accept migrants, means that reception is often mixed. The key policy here is really deterrence. You want to show toughness. You want to show this toughness. You want to, in that sense, uh, bring home a draconian migration policy. But it targets a very small segment of whole migrants and refugees. Ruben Anderson is an anthropologist who researches irregular migration and border controls in southern Europe. Right now, about 86% of the world's refugees are hosted by developing nations, not by rich states. And that's a number that's gone up from 70% a decade ago. So they are dealing with a vast majority of refugees, uh, not us in the West. 
So clearly they need support. And the fact that there's been a clear lack of humanitarian support, say for Syrians, in the neighboring countries uh, over uh, the recent period has clearly contributed to desperation and thus to, to the, the wish to, to depart for Europe. So of course you have to support these countries, but it's not an either or question because these countries also need to see that European states are doing something, they're sharing some of the responsibility here and that's not happening right now with some notable exceptions in Europe. Uh, they need to see that this political will to, to share because otherwise these countries are never going to be brought on board in terms of finding a long-term solution, a humane solution that works for everyone. Maybe it's time to look at some of the numbers that put the scale of irregular migration in context. While just over one million people arrived in Europe irregularly in 2015, 58 million people passed through Amsterdam Schiphol Airport in the same year. The majority of people in the EU without permission to be there are people who had visas and overstayed them. And in Europe, the current number of refugees is about 0.4% of the EU's population, a number that's actually lower than it was in the mid-1990s. Even the seemingly large numbers making up the UNHCR's displaced people, 67 million at the latest count, need to be placed within a wider context. Over 36 million of these people are internally displaced. They've had to leave their homes, but have fled to another part of their own country. The problem with calling the current situation a crisis is that it obscures the wider causes and the history that has led us to this point. But there's clearly a problem here that needs to be addressed. Significant numbers of people feel forced to make dangerous journeys to get to Europe and many lose their lives along the way. I think what's really needed is a real push on humanitarian visas, uh, on more uh, refugee resettlement via UNHCR, family reunification and so on. Uh, other ways of doing this, I think the very big risk with some form of offshore uh, processing of asylum applications is that you create yet another buffer. It will transform over time, as it has done, in other experiments along these lines into a way of keeping people away from European shores simply. I think we need to think of this much more long term and start sharing some of the responsibility. And that can be done already today. Humanitarian visas can be issued by European member states. The European Commission can push for this, enable this. These are possibilities that already exist along with refugee resettlement. It's just they're not being used for lack of political will. But what about the people who already have made a risky journey to Europe? That lack of political will means humanitarian agencies are doing a lot of the work that governments would normally do, particularly in reception centres and informal camps, like providing health care or even food distribution. This is the responsibility of the European Union. It is the responsibility of governments to provide assistance, both for its own populations, but also for those populations that they find within their territory. When that doesn't work, then humanitarian intervention becomes possible or becomes necessary. Polly Pallister-Wilkins specialises in humanitarian intervention and border control. When you get involved, you remove the responsibility from the states and from the member states. And so I understand humanitarian groups' reticence to do that, right? Because it's not OK to say, oh, yeah, it's all right, we'll, we'll do it. And focus on humanitarian aid and its offer of immediate life-saving assistance 
brings its own problems. Lesbos itself, there are, an, it's almost like little Netherlands. There are so many Dutch people volunteering in, 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 in Lesbos, and that's great. But then, you know, a refugees welcome demonstration in Amsterdam, there are like 100 people turn up. So I don't see the re-articulation of this politics back here. I don't see the attempt to politicize this issue. I see it as very much a you know, case of, oh, well, you know, I did my thing, I helped some people, and that's okay. Well, yes, and that is okay, and that should be commended, but at the same time, that's not enough. And that's partly always the problem of humanitarian action, is it doesn't tackle the root causes and the political causes of these particular crises. The question has been, and remains, are we ready for what it takes to assimilate and integrate more than a million refugees? No, I don't think people are. And I don't think people realise also that that they can't ever live in a world that prevents the movement of people. I think that's a lie that they've been told by their politicians or that somehow we can make Europe into a fortress. But at the same time, I also don't think people are ready to accept that some things might have to change in Europe. To be honest, I think a lot of Europeans have no clue about, you know, the the level of destruction and violence that people are fleeing from. And I don't think people are ready to, to, to face what that means. But then we've also been sold the lie that Europe has no money. Right? And we've been sold this lie of austerity and that Europe has no money. And so Europe has no money even to pay you know, welfare and education and healthcare for its own citizens. So how can it possibly afford to accommodate these, all of these Syrians? But again, austerity is, is you know, it's a political position. It's an ideology. It's a practice that's been put into place to pursue particular other sort of neoliberal policies of a shrinking of a supposedly sort of social social welfare state. But there are other potential responses to the issue of migration. Some have suggested the complete removal of borders, for example. But without them, it would be difficult to determine citizenship, voting rights and residency let alone who should have access to public services such as education, healthcare, social security and other social services, or, for that matter, who should pay tax. The idea of completely closed borders is also problematic. It would essentially require a totalitarian state to control all maritime and land borders. And critics say it's not only undesirable, but simply not possible in open democratic societies. But even the prospect of an EU-wide common asylum procedure doesn't seem to be on the table. For those working on the front lines, safe passage seems to be a logical solution. Maurice Stirl is one of the founders of Watch the Med. It's an activist organisation that provides an alarm phone that people can call if they need to be rescued at sea. Sea crossings shouldn't be the only way to reach European territory in the first place. So ideally, the alarm phone wouldn't exist. Ideally, legal and safe ways into Europe would be opened up by European countries. Because it's, of course, you know, this uh, strange border spectacle where hundreds and thousands of lives, more than 3,000 this year, have been lost uh, once again because there were no 
legal and safe pathways. And it's a whole industry of rescue, which shouldn't be there in the first place. It should be invested into welcoming people, not into this peculiar militarized border system that Europe is erecting. But Polly Pallister-Wilkins is sceptical that that will ever happen. It's in far too many people's interest for there not to be safe and legal routes. But it's not. It's still something that's worth calling for because what it effectively does do is highlights the fact that actually these people are put at risk and the need for search and rescue, the need for life-saving interventions is exactly the result of these restrictive policies. But in terms of the solution to what is going on now in Europe, this would be certainly a way of managing the crisis better and going some way to sort of preventing it happening again. Safe and legal passage is one partial solution that's continually put on the table. Not surprisingly, it's one that's also popular with those who have made an unsafe journey to the EU. An open letter from the community representative of Calais Jungle came to the Prime Minister of United Kingdom, David Cameron, and its people. Mohamed Nabi is from Afghanistan and spent a number of months at the informal camp in Calais in northern France while trying to get across the English Channel to the UK. He grew so frustrated with the situation he was in that he wrote a letter to then UK Prime Minister David Cameron and mailed it off. We believe the time has come to find an alternative, a better political solution for Britain, for France, for Europe, for us refugees for your borders. We understand the British government might be scared of different people coming into UK, about terrorists coming into UK. That's why you want to have such a secure borders as an alternative, an asylum centre in place here in France, here in Calais, where refugees can apply for asylum, for UK here in France. This is the solution. Together, work it out with us the refugees in Calais. This was our letter. Yeah, we believe a centre here will be very beneficial. The British government can screen them, can filter them. The people who are entitled to refugee status, they can go legally. So if there is a legal ways, people would rather go on legal ways. They wouldn't risk their life. They would wait for their legal procedure to happen and then they can go to UK legally. No matter where one sits on the political spectrum, it's clear that one of the main problems has been the inability to reach a consensus on what to do about the current situation. The only thing that everyone can agree on is the way this has been handled has been far from ideal. It's really a very, very, very tiny percentage of the total number of refugees worldwide. So it's ironic that for Europe seems to be such a massive problem that Europe apparently is not able to cope with. Hernan Del Valle is Head of Advocacy and Humanitarian Affairs for Doctors Without Borders, or MSF. It's not a matter of resources. It's a, a matter is the lack of political will. And how do I see the role of, of European governments? It's been, frankly, quite pathetic in terms of, of, of the finger-pointing. Ultimately, there are no governments that can bring a consensus around the idea that there is a responsibility to provide protection and assistance for, for, to people that are arriving in Europe, many of we, whom are, are fleeing conflict. Uh, but I, I also understand that, that many of those governments re- respond to 
are these parts of, uh, of electorates that, that are very, very negative towards immigration and asylum seekers. So that's a reality, unfortunately, in Europe today. As a humanitarian organisation, MSF is unique in that they're funded by individuals, not government aid money. That means they're able to independently decide where to be of use. Their decision to be present in the EU, a wealthy, developed part of the world that has the resources to tackle this crisis, was a fraught one. We're going to be there wherever we are needed, but also with a very conscious uh, awareness of we are not the solution for this. And the limited help uh, we can provide will, will certainly save some lives, but, uh, but it, it will not take away or replace the, the responsibility and the need for a European response that has to come from the politicians, has to come from states that have to really get... Instead, European governments have tried to make deals with third-party countries, countries like Turkey. There's been a lot of criticism about the agreement between the EU and Turkey, in part because of Turkey's human rights record. I mean, the the idea of externalising the border or outsourcing uh, immigration controls and and, and asylum-seeking procedures is, is, is just the idea of, like... Let's keep people in Turkey so they don't come to Europe. And how well Turkey does that, not in terms of keeping people, but but in terms of keeping people safely and conditions of, of, of dignity, I, I have my doubts. So, so we will have to probably continue to, to work in Turkey as well. How realistic it is to keep people uh, away from Europe? Absolutely unrealistic. It's simply not possible. Uh, history shows that when governments try to build a wall, people dig a trench. People find a way around it, or they take boats, or they fly in. There's always a way, and uh, I'm convinced that the solution is not about being smart and trying to block this, but uh, just to try to manage it in a more humane way, uh, because in the end we're talking about men, women, and children that suffer because political decisions that are made that shouldn't be made. There's an empathy needed that goes beyond the legal and political discussion about uh, who's a migrant, who's a refugee, and, and, and who is entitled to asylum and who, who's not. I think that those categories are, are at the same time useful and useless. They, they are useful to discuss certain things, but they're also useless to tackle the broader phenomenon. And, and I think they're very often manipulated by politicians who, who deliberately you know, portray the situation uh, one way or the other. The reality is that if we look through that lens, it's mixed. There are people who come fleeing war, and there are people who come fleeing other circumstances that are, that are, that are probably equally pressing in many cases. And uh, in the end, the lack of response and the lack of engagement and the idea that we can hide our heads under the sand and this is going to go away, I think it's very, very naive. There's another line of thinking on this. John Keith is Director of Public Affairs for the Eurotunnel. This tunnel runs between northern France and the UK and, in recent years, has seen an increase in people's attempts to stow away on the cars, trucks and trains it transports. Our fences and our extra policing doesn't stop their desire to come here. It just makes it more difficult for them when they arrive. So, in order to do something longer term, you have to stop the flow from increasing the numbers of people who are present And in order to stop the flow, you can look at it from the people traffickers perspective or you can look at it from the the decisions that people are making once they've left their countries of origin about where they're going to go. Um, Or you can go into the countries of origin and you can start to try and improve the circumstances there that will make people want to stay rather than leave. 
it's manifested at this point because this is the only border within Europe where the migrants are trying to leave the Schengen area and get to uh, a country that has a very determined uh, border and immigration management policy over many years and is also protected by being an island and having the channel, the busiest um, sea route in the world around it. But the solutions are not local. It can't be dealt with here. When countries do attempt local solutions, they're soon confronted by their limits. Jana Sabova is a lawyer who manages the Bulgarian Helsinki Committee, an NGO dedicated to human rights issues. Give me one example where building a wall actually stopped the human migration, because migration is a part of human history. Everyone migrated from somewhere to the place they lived. In the heart of every human being, the craving to have better life and it's the most natural human thing. It's up to us to decide how to actually make it possible. But it's a balance between expectations, opportunities and fears. a businessman who fled Pakistan in fear of his life, has had a trying time of it since reaching the EU. Pakistan is considered a safe country, so he was initially unable to apply for asylum. After staging a hunger strike in protest, the Greek authorities gave him permission to apply for asylum, but his application was rejected, as were two further appeals. With that avenue exhausted, he decided to pay a smuggler to get him out of Greece by plane. He was arrested at the airport and thrown in jail. It was there that his lawyer came to see him a number of weeks later with some news. I said, what? Are you joking with me? No, man. It's good news for you. I said, what? They reject your asylum case, but you are like... uh, sick and you have a lot of scars on your body so all the scars improve like uh, that uh, you are victim of torture so that's why they want to give you something i don't know which kind of paper but for a humanitarian reasons but not uh, asylum like uh, protection so i'm very happy and i i first call for my mom in pakistan and my family to inform them the great news. So it's very difficult time with even I'm with this happiness I'm crying again. And I'm I'm saying like thank God, thanks God, you saved me. And I'm also very thankful to for my friends who helped me. But I'm still worried about my family. Yeah, this is not asylum. I uh, reject my uh, asylum case. But they gave me like resident permit in future for two, three years this time. And then they renew again for five years and then maybe for 10 years. This is just for humanitarian reasons. 
because I have scars on my head, I have had injuries, I have uh, some scars on my body with the bullets. So I'm not happy with this. If you understand, he has scars on body with bullets, main head injuries with bullets. It means you understand, he's really a victim of torture. So why you don't give me the protection here in Europe? This is not fair. Yeah, that, there is problem. And Gulfam faces another difficulty. His name was spelt wrongly on his application for asylum, and his year of birth was also recorded incorrectly by the Greek authorities. So in order to get the residence permit he was granted, he needs to correct those things first. But that involves costly lawyers. It's been three months, and Gulfam, who now lives in Athens, still hasn't heard anything. So Athens is a very difficult place for new people. No accommodation, no food, nothing. So I'm just waiting for my resident permit. So my next plan is I have to go somewhere else in Europe and I have to apply again my asylum somewhere for my family. Okay, I am safe here, but my family is still from the same place. I want to save them. For Abrema, who travelled to Italy from West Africa, the process has been less fraught but equally frustrating because of all the waiting without any sense of what might happen. But Abrema's been through so much over the past few years that he's optimistic that things will work out in the end. Well, you manage like that till you have what you want. If you are lucky, you are documented, you go to your house, you manage within that six months, you have somewhere else to work. Ah, you are lucky. If you are not, you find a way. You have another thing to do. They say there are so many ways to kill the cat. Yeah. You can stamp it, you can beat it, you can knock, box it by finding the solution to do it. I think it will work. Though I have, I'm, I'm hoping to have a document, but I don't know exactly what will be there for me. I hope so. They will be documenting me. Yeah, I hope so. I don't know exactly. It's in darkness for me. That's how it is. Life in a place where there is no mom, no, no dad, no brother, no sister. Mm, it's not easy. It's not easy. I have to cope with the challenges. Yes. Anything you see, you try to tackle it. Yeah. Just with a good fit. Yeah. After nearly a year of waiting, Ibrahima finally received the Italian government's decision on his asylum application. It was approved. He was put in touch with an organisation that was supposed to train and pay him to work, but they failed to deliver what they promised. So Ibrahima is back in Foggia in southern Italy, trying to find farm work, which typically only pays around three euros an hour. Meanwhile, the Sea Watch 2 and other search and rescue boats continue their missions. People wait out weeks and months in camps, unable to move forward until they receive their decisions on their asylum applications. 
and the EU remains indecisive about how it will move forward. The only one who seems to have any positive sense about what the future offers is Abdurrahman. His life in Sweden now is fine, but he isn't content just sitting around. I do want to work with uh, some organisation or with the UN, working in countries like Somalia or Syria. There isn't much to do here. You have everything and it's my purpose to have a life more meaningful. Yeah. Migration Trail is part of a 10-day real-time online experience. Go to our interactive website, migrationtrail.com, for more infographics on the issues you've heard in this episode. While you're there, you can follow reconstructed journeys based on real experiences and to see migration mapped in a whole new way. This podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher and our website, migrationtrail.com. Migration Trail is made by Alison Killing, Josie Gardner, Sarah Sae, Thomas Leverstrow, Asha Kamen and Anique C. Narration by me, Marnie Chesterton. Additional fact-checking by Benjamin Thomas White. The music was composed and performed by Bora Yoon. The Migration Trail project has been funded by a Wired and the Space Creative Innovation Fellowship, the Creative Industries Fund NL, the Netherlands Film Fund, Dutch Media Fund and Arts Council England. Further support has come from the Fine Acts Foundation, Autodesk and Battersea Arts Centre.